This is Michael Eagley in Context. There is only one Lord of the Ring. Only one who can bend it to his will. And he does not share power. Well, welcome again from Gandalf the Grey. Um, to hear that chilling scene reminds me of a, a way, perhaps, the believer in Christ ought to view the king. We are in Psalm 110. It is a royal psalm, a psalm of David, a psalm, as we'll see, that has great significance in our New Testament thinking as well. Let's resume the program in progress. Number one, the king is enthroned in heaven. Number two, the king rules on earth. Number three, the king will be a high priest forever. Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Yahweh has sworn and he won't relent. Melchizedek, of course, is a complicated and mysterious person. I mentioned earlier the word melech, M-L-K, is the word king in Hebrew. And so tzaddik, tzaddik is righteousness. We talked a little bit about righteousness, that God always does the right thing in the right way. No injustice escapes his mind. There will be a reckoning. I was talking to someone today. A great injustice occurred to them. How many of you have had an injustice occur to you in your life? And you, you, as much as you can say, I was innocent. This shouldn't have happened. It was unfair. And the results of that wound us deeply. And some of us have a hard, hard time letting go. Cindy and I have had a couple of injustices in our life. And if I think about it very long, I get very depressed. I'm not so much angry at God or ask God why. I just don't know why it happened. And I have a hard time forgiving people that did certain things to us at particular times in our lives. I'm not uh, sort of a, I can't wait to see God get even, but I do put my hope on a righteous king. Melchizedek is a complicated idea and a real person. Melech, the king, Tzaddik, he's the king of righteousness, we might say. He's a king who embodies righteousness. He's a righteous person who happened to be a king. It's a complicated idea. You know the story? Abram, this is before he's Abraham, is in the area of Salem. And it's in Genesis uh, 13, 14, if memory serves. And uh, Melchizedek comes on scene. Abram has won a battle. And for whatever reason, the text doesn't tell us, Abraham recognizes Melchizedek as a person having authority over him. And he gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth of all that he has. Now, who's Abram? He's the chosen man of God to be the father of the Jewish people. Who's over him? So we all scratch our head and Bible students, you know, we make up stuff who we think Melchizedek is. Some great Bible scholars make up some great stuff. We just don't know. Some really good traction is people think he might be a theophany, a Christophany, that he was the Christ. And Jesus occurs in the Old Testament a number of times. Maybe not, maybe so, but whatever he was, he was a type of Christ. He's a king, Melech, he's Zadik, he's righteous. And Abram, the man God picked to be the father of a multitude of countless people who will be his chosen people, he gives him a tenth. It's a, it's a picture of worship. He recognizes him as the wordplay, uh, Melchizedek, the king. You can't miss the language. And this, of course, will come back in the book of Hebrews. 
The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's, let's stretch your brain a little bit. Aaron is the priest. The Levites are the priests who carry out the sacrifices we've talked about. They bloody their hands. The temple shepherds, when Jesus comes on the scene, are tending sheep that are more likely than not the sheep used for the tabernacle and temple complex sacrifices. That's why they got it when the star came and they heard about this baby born. They've been shepherding those paschal lambs for their entire life. They understood it. And so they put these pieces together. And here you have uh, this, this scene coming on where they're starting to connect the dots as Levitical priests. Their job is to butcher animals. Now, do we need the Levites anymore? We don't need experts in knowing how to sacrifice. The order of the Levitical priest ended. Got to have a new priest. He can't come through Aaron. He's got to come through Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. God in his superintention plan says, I'm not going to have a bloody priest come through the Aaronic priesthood. I'm going to do something different. I'm going to pull him out of the lion of the tribe of Judah. So the Levitical priesthood has ended and the Aaronic priesthood, which it's still recognized, but now we have a new priest. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Wait, 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 wait. What's the order of Melchizedek? We never heard about this guy. We have a couple of cryptic passages about him. What does that mean? It means that this king comes from a line of righteousness, not a line of sacrifice. If you've been to Israel, I hope I've guilted you into going. If you haven't, if you've been to Israel, you will go to a number of places that are owned by the government or the the Ministry of Tourism wants you to see. And one of them you go to is the uh, Jerusalem Institute in, in, in the old city. And they show you a little video and they show you a few of the implements. And they're raising money to uh, rebuild the shovels, the altar, the basins, everything according to the rabbinic specs that they have in secret hiding. And uh, they don't really push it, but they want you to give money. And they have a big plexiglass um, box and behind there they have one of the shovels that they have recreated. And they're trying to get the right materials, the right gold. Uh, It's beautiful ornate stuff. It's made out of bronze, the ones they have on display. And I asked one of the curates uh, there, I said, how do they know all this great detail? Because as I read the Bible, it doesn't say anything about all these details. Now we get some details in the temple, but nothing like this. And they go, oh, the rabbis know. Uh, Well, how do they know? Oh, well, they know. Maybe they do. One of the greatest theories I've heard over there is that the Ark of the Covenant is probably a few hundred feet away from where it used to be. Which kind of makes sense. When Titus 70 AD came and destroyed and pillared and burned the city to the ground, you think the rabbis would just sit there and let all the implements of the tabernacle complex be, be trampled upon by these Romans? by these godless pagans, by Titus and his armies. Uh, They weren't stupid religious weirdos. They were brilliant men. And the so-called rabbi's tunnels may very well be. That's a good Indiana Jones movie in my opinion. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it could very well be in a box in Washington, D.C. too. I mean, that, that, that sort of makes sense in God's sense of humor. I, I kind of like that. But this priesthood will not come from the Levitical priest. Notice again, verse 4, God's sworn, he's not going to change his mind, you're a priest forever. You don't need Levitical priests forever, because the sacrificial system is over. You need a new priest. 
And this one has to come from the order of Melchizedek. The Lord, verse five, is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. Uh, God the Father has declared a solemn oath. When God the Father declares an oath, just as he did with his covenant promise and chosen people, he doesn't change. The character of Yahweh Elohim is if he says something, you can stake your life on it. That's what it means to trust in his word. And here we have the language stacking up on top of it. We don't need this old form of sacrifice. Uh, by the way, did you see verse 1? He sat at his right hand. And you know the old saw about there's no, there's no chair in the Holy of Holies. I think that misses the point. The point is the priest had a job, and the job never ended because sacrifice never ended. But now there's no more sacrifice. You can sit down, Jesus. The priesthood is rested. We don't need you to be butchering hundreds of thousands of bulls and goats and sheep and turtle doves and all these bloody sacrifices because you also happen to be the one who fulfilled it according to God's solemn oath. The phrase, he will not relent, he does not change his mind. Uh, the emotional aspect of this is that he doesn't regret or he's not grieved by promises he makes. Jot down Exodus 13 verse 17 that God does not change his mind in the way volitionally we think of a person. Once he makes up his plan, he won't alter the plan. You're a priest forever. This is my plan. I chose you. You're the chosen son. You have an eternal ministry. It's completed now, and you will sit until a future time when you will come to earth. Verse 4, one more time. The Lord has sworn, not change his mind. You're a priest forever according to this righteous king order. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, verse 6. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook of the way, by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Fourthly, the king will crush the opposition, he will judge the nations. The language becomes military, it becomes clearly victorious, it's convincing, it's devastating, and this person, this king, is going to wreck some havoc. Now in the New Testament we have the full revelation. We know the king is the divine son, Jesus Christ. We know that the Godhead as it work in this Trinitarian doctrine we hold dear. All persons of the Godhead are present. And the language is uh, very cumbersome in verses four and five, when the Lord is at your right hand. Now who are we talking about? You can't say David, the Lord, is at your right hand, capital your, as most of your Bibles correctly do. So most of the conservative scholars believe the role has changed a tiny bit here. In other words, Yahweh is now at the right hand of Jesus. You don't want to take this one to the theological bank, but if it's true, if that's what the psalm is saying, it's saying there's an inseparable ministry of Christ and the Father. And there will come a time in the dispatch when the Father will say, uh, go uh, to earth and go to Zion and let's, let's continue the program I've set from eternity past. And if verse 5 is interpreted this way, then the Lord is now at the right hand. The role is not reduced, it's that they're together. Makes some pretty good traction. Um, I wouldn't take it to the bull dogmatic bank. But nevertheless, this is part of what drives those Hebrew scholars smarter than me crazy. God is at the right hand. It's a place of service. It's a place of dominion. It's a place of great power. And in order for him to be victorious, 
The Lord is at your right hand. The effect of this will be uh, that God shatters the enemies of Jesus, the enemies of Yahweh Elohim. It's a graphic illustration. It's a fatal blow. The language is very visceral. If you remember the story of Judges 5 and uh, Sisera, um, remember how Jael drives the, the, pent, the tent peg through the skull. It's a great story for uh, junior high boys, if you teach Sunday school class, teach them stories like this. They will be entertained and interested in the Bible. Teach them about Eglon and Ehud, the guy with the sword that went all the way in. And they love these stories. Um, that's how you interest them in the Bible. Um, it's a very gross story, uh, but it's the same word. Uh, these images aren't just there for literary brilliance. These images are there because Yahweh Elohim and his kingdom will crush his enemies. And he will destroy them. The Lord will have bodies filling the valley. If um, you go, and some would dispute the concept of Armageddon, when you go to Israel, there are basically state parks. And you buy a big parks pass, and uh, if you drive in a car or go on a bus or tour, you go to these parks, and you park your car, and it's very safe, by the way. The worst part is just the flight over there. That's miserable, and coming home is worse, but uh, you take Ambien and you live. And, um, <laughs> and, and you go to these state parks. It's very safe. It's, it's just wonderful. And go in March. That's my recommendation. And you go to Mount Carmel. And there's a picture of uh, Jerome and a little church, Catholic church there. And you go up and then there's the Mount Carmel church. And there's this statue of a guy with a knife who would be Elijah. And you go to the top of this little Catholic church and there's a little, oh, I don't know, probably about from that wall to here and uh, maybe 40 feet wide in a little area with parapets and you walk over there and on a clear day you can see clear across the valley of Megiddo. And if you're uh, of the military persuasion, you will notice on the ground an airstrip. Two of them, like a, like a skinny X. There's an entire wing of American fighter planes that the Jews own underground right there. And the observant eye will see the runways. And you might even say that, see them doing touch and goes depending on the day. That's where they base out of. It's not a huge area. It's big enough to have two airstrips in it. But uh, Megiddo, Har Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo becomes Armageddon in Revelation. And some scholars debate whether there will actually be a battle there. Some believe this is just the stand, but there's no battle at this place because um, it's taken care of. But it does give you a picture of a valley full of nations that come against Yahweh and his servant Jesus Christ and try to destroy him. And it will take months to bury the dead. Ezekiel chapter 39, 12. Cindy and I uh, know Gary Haugen, the founder of IJM, and he went to Rwanda after the Rwanda massacres had been uncovered. He was a lead investigator for the United States government on the Rwandan massacres. If you've heard Gary, he tells a story about, he says, how do you investigate a crime? He says, well, first you go to the crime scene. So they took this little United States entourage to these shallow graves. As far as the eye can see, uh, bodies decomposing at various levels with shallow dirt over them. They estimate 800,000 people were murdered in the Rwandan massacres. Um, and to give you a picture of that, he says that's three 9-11s a day for six weeks. 
And he was the lead investigator. He says, so after you traipse around shallow graves for several days, the next thing you do as an investigator is you talk to the survivors. And the first survivor was a young Rwandan girl about 13 years old. They had shaved her head because of the lice and bugs and problems she had. And they had a little wobbly wooden table with two little makeshift chairs on a dirt ground under a tarped area. And um, he sits down and says, hi, my name's Gary. What would you ask her? She has machete scars on her neck and shoulder. And she was left four days among the decomposing bodies before someone found her alive. And if you have been around this type of thing or talk to these type of people, my mind runs to the eschatology. Rwanda will look like a small field. There will be armies that will rise up against Jesus Christ. I don't think this is figurative language to be ignored, to be somehow that's figurative of what's going to happen in the heavenlies. I think this is a literal concept. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. This is the Messiah we don't talk about. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. Broad country probably means Israel. It's a euphemism for the idea of Israel. Uh, The word here, chief, is a singular word, and it causes people who believe in prophecy and eschatology to run to the book of Revelation to favor the idea that yes, there'll be many who will come against Messiah, but there will be a leader. If so, that fulfills the prophecy very neatly. He will shatter the chief men over this broad country, the leaders and the leaders of leaders. Revelation 19.20, Revelation 19.20, and Revelation 20, verse 2. And again, this goes back to the imagery of the enmity in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 7, the psalm concludes, uh, the, the, this man, this leader, this king, will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Uh, you know the phrase wadi? A wadi, if uh, when you go to Israel, got it now, you're going to go to Israel at some point in your life. Uh, you will uh, learn about wadis. And you'll be riding along in this air-conditioned, nice uh, luxury tour coach, a.k.a. a bus, and you'll be riding along, and you'll see all these little ravines that are just like low-lying areas, and they're just dirt, barren, desert, not a green stitch of plant life as far as I can see, and it's wadi this and wadi that, wadi kelt, and, and you say, well, What is that difference? When you get a rain in Israel, uh, the earth doesn't absorb water well. And if you get two or three inches of rain, it can cause a flood in a wadi. Because it'll just roll down like water off blacktop, if you will, and just rush through. And there are accounts in the 70s and 80s of people losing their lives in floods in the Judean wilderness. Because the watershed comes off so quickly and those wadis that look like just they've never had a drop of water in them become these raging rivers and drown people. And that's the image here of the brook by the wayside. It's the word wadi. This conquering king will drink from what was once a barren, dry gulch. And it's a picture of the blessing of the land. It's a picture of the conquering king. Remember the number one thing you need in Israel? Water. You've got to have water. And the image says he'll drink water. Life comes from death. What is the Judean wilderness will no longer be so because of the blessing of God. A nice touch of scripture that reminds us of the glory of the king. He will therefore lift up his head. We know many expressions about he's the lifter of our head. It's the idea that Messiah has, has won. 
Messiah's king goes back to verse one, our chiastic devices again, the Lord says to my Lord. And here in verse seven, he's gonna lift up his head. He's the victor, he's the last man standing because he's the God king. The king will be filled with honor, he will be exalted in eternal heavens. He's enthroned in heaven, he rules on earth for a time. He becomes the priest forever, fulfilling the Aaronic Levitical priesthood that could not fulfill its mission, and then he will judge the nations forever. Uh, Passages like this, um, for those of us that like them, are fun and interesting. For those of us who don't, you say, Michael, why did you pick that psalm? I picked it because this is the one Jesus talked about. This is the most quoted one in the New Testament. And it speaks very specifically about the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So it should give us hope and comfort. I am not optimistic about our country. I'm not optimistic about our world. I'm not optimistic about government bailing out financial institutions. I'm not optimistic about these programs. I hope they work. I would love to be proved wrong. I would love to be proved wrong that America will once again become the great shining city on a hill. I'm sorry, I'm a cynic. I think. Korea and China have taken our place. That's good. It's sad for us. But I have hope and comfort in a different outcome. A political leader that you and I vote for or again is probably not going to do much significance unless God uses him or her. If he does, wonderful. I'll be excited and I'll be ready to bless God. But you know what? We have nothing to fear. I've been afraid since 9-11. And when I talk to people that do this for a living, I'm more afraid. I have a friend whose job was to oversee all of the uh, shipping cartons. If you go to California or Baltimore Inner Harbor, you'll see shipping cartons as far as the eye can see. These enormous things that come off boats. We don't know what's in them. He was telling me about, you know how you walk through the airport with the magnetometers and all that stuff now? He said, we're trying to design those for shipping cartons. He said, number one, you know how hard it is to see inside something that big and deep? He said, number two, it would take us years to just look at what we got on the shore. You want to be afraid? He said, next time you see a bunch of 18-wheelers going down the street, just imagine they're full of fertilizer. Send 50 of those to the Pentagon one day and see if you can stop half of them with all the devices we've got running around Washington, D.C. in the sky. It wouldn't take many to make a big dent. There are so many ways the enemy can get at us. Am I getting you scared? I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to be afraid. I know men and women that do this for a living. I'm glad they do it for a living. God bless them. Tap my phone all you want. I don't care. I got nothing to hide. You want to look at it? Go right ahead. My hope and comfort does not come from my friends on the hill and my friends who swore an oath to God in this country. My hope comes from this passage. I have a king. One day he's going to come down here and he's going to set it right. There'll be nobody who'll stop him. There'll be no Amenajab who will be successful. There'll be no Al-Qaeda terrorist who will die a foolish martyr's death for some cause they don't understand. Because we have a king. We have nothing to fear as a believer in Christ. So we comfort and encourage one another and we live in Christ according to his righteousness. And that's what we're called to do. Our Father in heaven, We do all always to remember you. Let us not read these stories with a tired or jaded eye of prophecy that seems old and out of place, but to realize your word is true. Messiah is coming. We look forward to the day. If it would be in our lifetime, 
It would be thrilling. If you'd take us off the scene first, we'd be glad. But nevertheless, you're the king. Help us to be extraordinary servants in Christ and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. During the course of our lives, we face uncertain times. It may be in our 20s, it may be in our 60s, it may be in our 80s, but we face those cliffs, as it were, and wonder about this world and the next. You know, as you face your future, as you face eternity, uh, we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts? What are your questions? What are your concerns? Where are your confidences in the future? And you can email me at michael at michaelincontext.com. Again, michael at michaelincontext.com. You can visit the website, michaeleasleyincontext.com. Drop us a note or leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. This is Michael Easley in Context.